Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. COVID-19 cases are rising across the nation, especially among children who cannot get vaccinated. This week, we look at COVID and education. A report from the University of Arizona showed that between August 8th and 15th, the number of COVID-19 cases in children between the ages of 10 and 14 outpaced every other age group in the state. And overall, 25% of cases in Arizona are now among children. Children under the age of 12 are not eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. When some schools reopened during the last school year, the state did not see that type of increase. Dr. Francisco Garcia, Pima County's chief medical officer, says you really can't compare the end of last school year to the start of this one. It wouldn't be a, an apples-to-apples apples comparison because two things are different today than they were uh, when we first began to deal with this. Number one, um, we have the Delta variant, which is a, a highly infectious variant um, that is sort of impacting us. And, and we know that that is making a tremendous difference, right? Um, the, the second thing that's different, um, last school year, last semester, for instance, my kids were back in school during the second half of the last semester, uh, which was when TUSD went back in. Um, even when kids were in school, the capacities of school, the, the number of children in classrooms was much, much smaller than it is today. Um, and, um, you know, for TUSD, it was something like a quarter of kids were actually in uh, physical classrooms. Um, and for most of our school districts, Vail, um, Sunnyside, um, the ones that had in-class options uh, for the second half of last semester, their occupancy, the number of butts in chairs was relatively modest. The third thing that is different um, was the thing that at that time, the schools had um, complete liberty to implement whatever mitigation strategies they wanted to. Um, and so you saw because there was less density, less kid density in the classroom, you saw them being able to space out children. You saw them being able to require masks. Um, you saw them do temperature checks and start um, the uh, process of doing um, um, testing on some of the cohorts of children. That's really, really different from the reality that we're living now, which is, which is many more children in the classroom um, a very highly transmissible variant um, and a population of, of um, very vulnerable children, that is children who are not vaccine age eligible. Garcia said during a news conference, the concern for children is real in Pima County. When we look at the data for um, schools, um, just since the beginning of the school year, since since July of the school year, we've had 1,235 school-related cases. These are cases that were reported by the schools um, to us. Um, to put it, to most of those cases, by the way, are in children. The vast, vast majority of them, um, you know, are in that age group of um, uh, less than 12. Uh, so 500 and 
So last week, 550 were in that age group of uh, less than 12. So this most vulnerable age group is the age group that we see being impacted. We see that this phenomenon is playing out uh, across all our different school districts um, and uh, all our different schools. We have uh, approximately 205 schools that have reported um, you know, cases out of um, those environments. Um, and as of last week, we had 50 confirmed outbreaks. Um, to put it simply, the, the, the higher the number of students in a school, the more likely you're going to be to see school-related cases. That was Pima County's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Francisco Garcia. While officials throughout Arizona are looking for ways to control the spread of COVID-19, the task has been made harder by state leaders who've banned most institutions from requiring masks or vaccinations. A couple of local school districts are adopting ways to test masses of students in the hope of detecting the disease early. Steve Jess explains that the pooled testing approach promises to track the spread of the disease with only minor disruption to students and their classes, but it's getting a slow start in southern Arizona. A few weeks ago, the Tucson Unified School District Governing Board hosted a presentation by Tim Lydon of Boston-based Ginkgo Bioworks. It was essentially a sales pitch. But the district wasn't being asked to spend any money. Instead, Leiden wanted board members to adopt his company's COVID-19 testing system, which would be paid for by the state out of federal COVID relief funds. It's intended to test cohorts. Take many samples, put them in one tube, test that tube. Um, uh, it's highly efficient and it's uh, less resource intensive. It protects students' privacy. So in homeroom, our students, after they get their bags away, jackets away, get out their Chromebooks, they'll sanitize their hands, grab the swab, put it in their nose four times in each nostril. A company video posted on YouTube shows young students unwrapping short nasal swabs, swabbing their own noses, and dropping all those swabs into a common tube which goes to the lab for testing. Leiden claims an entire classroom can self-test once a week in about five minutes. One of the reasons it's so quick is that you don't have to take all the individual student information and put it into the portal and document it for every single student. That's required if you were testing individual students as opposed to starting with a pooled test. And that also, like I said, protects privacy. You'll notice Leiden emphasizes privacy. That matters because students will take the test only if their parents opt in. Parents will be asked to opt in once at the start of the school year, and then their child will take part in the test every week. Leiden seemed to recognize that a lot of parents might not want their kids to be given a medical test at school, even a test that's supposed to be anonymous. He stressed that full participation isn't needed. Even if only a fraction of the students in the class take part, he says the system will eventually find where the virus is hiding. But as long as you can get four or five students for a classroom, it makes sense to test that classroom. We have a study that says even if there's only 10 to 15 percent participation in such a close cohort, you're still picking up over time the viral load in that classroom. So what happens once students swab their own noses and drop the swabs into the glass tube? Leiden says each class's swabs are collected and taken to a lab in Phoenix for testing. Typically, the results are in by midnight. If COVID is detected in the class, and Leiden says that happens about 1% of the time, 
then the school district can test students and staff individually the very next morning to find out who's the carrier. TUSD board member Dr. Ravi Gravoy Shaw worried that widespread testing could lead to a lot of classrooms being shut down and a lot of students being asked to quarantine, possibly needlessly. I would imagine that if we're, we're testing more frequently and we find a lot more of the asymptomatic carriers, uh, that we're going to have to close down, you know, quarantine more kids and close down more classrooms. Leiden said quarantine decisions are up to the policymakers, in this case the county health department and the school system. If you do catch someone who's asymptomatic um, but has been wearing a mask, pulling them out may not result, need to result in pulling out close associates. That's a, obviously a policy decision. The TUSD board decided to proceed with the Ginkgo Bioworks pooled testing system, starting with a pilot in 15 schools, ramping up to testing in every school by September 29th. That's the day when the state's ban on mandatory mask-wearing rules goes into effect. At last check, TUSD was still preparing to roll out the testing system. Sunnyside, the only other school district that's agreed to try pooled testing, is still in the startup phase. So it's still too early to tell whether parents will opt their children into the program and whether it will effectively detect potential COVID outbreaks. For The Buzz, I'm Steve Jess. The Vale School District, just east of Tucson, is made up of 22 schools. The district was able to increase the number of counselors this year to 33, covering all grade levels. Amanda Cook supervises all of the counselors in the Vale School District, so she and the other counselors have a first-hand look at how students are adapting. She says there was plenty of excitement when the first bells of the year rang. They were excited to see their friends that they haven't been able to see in person for almost 18 months, and they were excited to see their teachers in person that they haven't been able to do. So in general, I would say the first day of school was just like any other first day of school, but there was you know, some hesitation. Um, but overall, I would say that there was excitement. We've heard and seen, thanks to viral video, what we will call some bad behavior from adults as they've come back into the world, especially on airplanes. Are you seeing kids acting out uh, in school as they too have to readapt to going back out in the world? I would say yes, there are, you know, behaviors that we're we're finding. Um, if you can imagine, you know, school is one of those settings where where students learn how to interact with with others, both their peers and adults. And when you take away a year, almost two years of of being able to interact with their peers and adults, we they lose some of those social skills, just like us as adults. I think we've lost some of those social skills because we were isolating. And so, yeah, there there have been, you know, students acting out in the classroom, refusing to do things. Um, but, you know, teachers are great and they're learning how to manage that the best that they can with the support of their administration. From a parent's standpoint, what are some things that they need to watch for maybe as their kids are going back to school? Because, as you said, it, it, it is a little bit stressful. We've lost we've all lost some of those skills. Are there things that parents need to watch for because kids don't always communicate so well as maybe their parents would hope they would. So my recommendation would be to to watch their behaviors. You know, if if typically they're an easygoing child and all of a sudden they're irritable and they are defiant, then that could be an indicator that, you know, something is wrong. Where on the reverse, if they are an outgoing, bubbly kid and all of a sudden they're recluse, they're hanging out in their bedroom, they don't want to participate in family events, 
then that's also another indicator that something's going on. But in general, I would just say, you know, have conversations with your with your kids on a daily basis and just talk about how things are going with school. Reach out to the teacher and, you know, get an idea of what's happening in the classroom and how they can support them at home with their academics. If you've got kids that are stressed out, you said reach out to the teachers if you're seeing some stressed behavior. Are there other things that parents need to do maybe to help reduce that stress, whether it's going back to school or dealing with the social pressures that maybe they hadn't dealt with quite so much uh, for the last 18 months? So I would say definitely partnering with the school, you know, reaching out to the teacher, reaching out to the, the school counselor or any other resource that's there on campus. But then at home, really developing a routine, you know, kids, you know, both, you know, young and, you know, the ones that are about to graduate high school, they thrive on a routine. And so if we can help as parents establish that daily routine, at least that's one less thing that a, that a kid has to worry about figuring out because they're already worried about figuring out math and science and social studies and, you know, all the other stuff. But if we could just help them with this one thing. And then um, the other thing is just that connection, that that connection both with as a family, um, and, and just with the school and just encouraging, you know, being connected with, with your school and, and trying something new. You know, if you haven't been involved in a club, try something new. Has it been stressful for students with that looming possibility that we could go back to hybrid or we could go back to online if the numbers jump that the adults are certainly watching? Is that an added stressor for them, that not knowing and then in and out of classes even? Absolutely. I think I think the stressor of, of not knowing, like you said, is is definitely something students worry about. And I think that's where they look to their teacher as that that, you know, adult figure in their daily life for reassurance. And I know that our teachers are working really hard to build that connection with their with their classroom to help when those situations um, ever start to get discussed. Kids can be pretty resilient. Will this be a long-term problem, do you think, for for this generation of students? I like to say that um, our students are resilient and that they'll be able to look back at this as having a piece of history and being able to participate in it. But overall, I think that through this, with the support that they have on campus and at home, they're learning resiliency, they're learning grit, they're learning what it takes to, to work through hard situations. But yes, it, it's definitely going to change. You know, they're not going to be the same student they were two years ago, you know, when we ever come out of this, they will have, you know, learned new skills and acquired new behaviors. But um, overall, I do think that, that they'll be able to come out of this better people. We hear a lot about, especially in recent days, the, that learning gap, as it's being referred to. Has that learning gap affected the way that kids are acting? They lost some of that um, natural skill building that they would have learned on campus with their peers. And so, yes, you know, throughout these last, I mean, Vail's been in school since almost the last week of July, I think. Um, so over these last four to five weeks, it's it's truly been relearning those type of skills, reiterating and reinforcing, you know, classroom expectations, how we interact with others, simply how do we walk down the hallway as a class, those type of things, you know, how do we play on a playground, you know, how do we sit in a cafeteria and eat lunch with our peers, those kind of things, you know, there's all, a, you know, a gap, but like I said, kids are resilient and they're they're learning how to, you know, face these challenges and, and figuring it out 
and, you know, really looking to, to make the best of it. That was Amanda Cook, the lead counselor with the Vail School District. This week, we're looking at how COVID is affecting Arizona's K-12 schools. The Arizona Department of Education recently released data for the 2020-2021 school year looking at how students did academically. Not surprisingly, scores dropped. The year showed a 4% decrease in English language scores on standardized testing and an 11% drop in math scores. The news was expected by most people in the education field as students grappled with transitioning to online classes and hybrid classrooms. Dr. Christopher Bond spent the pandemic working in multiple rural school districts across the Southwest. Now he's the superintendent of the 1,200-student Babakivari Unified School District on the Thana Aatham Nation and says those are not the results he saw. Our student achievement actually improved during COVID, um, post-COVID. Our, our scores, even in this district, are higher than they were pre-COVID. And I think one of the reasons was accessibility. We still have kids in the nation that have devices and have hotspots, but there's no mobile tower out in their village or in their community so that they can access the wireless network. So that's, that's a, a real serious reality. But there's usually, in many cases, something somewhere in the village where they can get there and and they can still get access so we still have some kids that are struggling with access but it's not quite as many as people believe and it's not because the schools haven't built the structures it's just that you know corporate america just really doesn't see it profitable to put a cell phone tower in a community that only has 11 or 15 people living there and so that's always going to be a problem we live in a capitalistic country and so I'm hoping and I'm reading literature now that there, we're exploring new ways of maybe getting in uh, low altitude satellites in so that people in rural communities where it isn't profitable to get a cell phone tower in there, uh, kids would still have access to some kind of Wi-Fi and stuff. Because I don't believe COVID is going away anytime soon. And even if it does go away, I think we have a new normal. And I'll tell you, it really benefits rural communities in a lot of sense, because like I was telling you, Monsoons are going to be here whether we conquer COVID or not. And we have situations where we can't get buses to kids or we can't get kids out of their communities because the roads are washed away. Well, now if they have Internet and they have access to a wireless network or a low altitude satellite, kids can still have access to the curriculum. We can now operate school 24 hours a day instead of the normal seven hour day. There's a lot of things that we could do now because we're forced into a situation where we're utilizing the technology to the best. And I would argue with people that would say, you know, that our kids are getting a subpar education. Well, the data doesn't say that. And I do know we have kids that it's not the best situation for them. But I've always believed that if we raise our standard and our expectations, our kids will rise to the occasion. And here's a perfect example of that. You mentioned as part of your hypothesis as to why your kids are doing better in the district, uh, you know, the, the scores are up. The, the data shows that, that one of the issues is they had more access, which some people may raise an eyebrow to. Expand on that a little bit, if you can, and explain how they had better access and, and why you think they're doing better. A traditional school is a cookie cutter. Nobody wants to hear that. Look, I, I'm not about education reform. I don't want to reform something that's broken. It's been broken for a long time. I'm about education transformation. Let's look at doing things completely different. Let's jump out of an airplane and feel the bliss. 
burn the ship. I don't know what you want to call it. But, you know, in one school district that I worked, we had less than 20% of the kids had access to, to Google devices. And they weren't allowed to take them home at night because everybody was afraid they were going to break them and we didn't have the money to replace them. Then COVID came and we received some ESSER funds and some CARES Act. So we had some additional dollars that we didn't have in education to buy a device for every single kid. We buy those devices and now we get them to the kids, but we can't keep them at the school anymore. And so we have to distribute them to kids and we have to teach them how to use it. I think that in itself um, just helped raise the performance of us academically. And I'll even make it better for you. We got teachers that are recording their lessons now. So if you miss the lesson at 7.59, you can log in at 10 o'clock. So we have high school kids now that can get jobs and help support their families or do some of their cultural things and help out on the, in the agriculture. And they're not missing lessons because they can go do that in the morning when it's cool enough and then come in in the hotter part of the day and have access to the curriculum. That wasn't ever an option. And so I think you'll see that the, the sentiment's the same in all rural communities. It's just provided more opportunities and connectivity for kids. That was Christopher Bond, the superintendent of the Babakivari Unified School District. To make remote learning work, a district needs infrastructure. The federal government made money available to help with digital infrastructure, but that takes time. Ana Samaniego, the superintendent in the Douglas Unified School District, says the problems her district had were like so many others in Arizona. The main issue here was, one, uh, Douglas Unified um, was not a one-to-one district, you know, where one student to one device. So the te- in, in, in terms of just technology availability for students and teachers to be able to teach um, and learn from home um, was a definite uh, issue we had to deal with, number one. Um, Internet capabilities um, at homes uh, was another concern. Um, Some families, and I will say that even some teachers, don't have internet at home. And they may um, live in some remote part of town where even getting access to, uh, you know, Wi-Fi because they live remotely, it was not even a possibility. So we dealt um, with the internet uh, infrastructure, the device um, capability, and just providing the um, broadband, uh, Wi-Fi broadband internally at our, at our schools was something that we had to quickly um, address and, and figure out strategies to, one, help our teachers to help our, our students and, uh, and our parents that were living and now, you know, we're, we were working from home and um, learning from home. So we try to do the very best that we could with the funding or the means that we had uh, during that time last year. You mentioned funding. When it comes to funding, I know there were federal dollars in the CARES Act, in the American Rescue Plan. Was that enough? And what did you do in the meantime? Because obviously there were gaps. I think one of the very first things that we did was analyze um, our own technology infrastructure. Okay, what do we have versus what don't we have? And so at that point, um, we were able to, you know, address the number of technology devices we had as a possibility to loan out to our our families. Um, 
and we had some of course we were no near not nearly enough to even probably half of our student population so um, in the meantime we issued out what we had and of course uh, we had parents fill out you know re device request forms um, they had to be submitted by a certain time so it was kind of a first come first serve basis and so under that process, we were able to get, you know, um, a good chunk of our families, at least uh, a technology device. And what we did, and I'm not sure if other districts uh, did this, but, you know, you have one family household with, let's say, five kids. And so we um, allowed an individual device to be given out to every one um, of those children, um, as long as it was requested. So, we first looked at what we had, we gave out what we had. Um, in the meantime, um, from funding from the stabilization grant and then the ESSER grant, you know, the CARES Act money came in through. And so we um, applied uh, for those, you know, immediately and looked at, and I will say that the approval for the, those funds and those grants was rather quickly so that districts could start operating and making um, those expenses. I feel that we did the very best as soon as we were approved with that extra funding and we were able to order. So we gave out families requested devices. And I think the total amount during last year was a little over 2000 devices that were given out. Um, we, uh, I don't think there was one family that requested a device that wasn't issued one. So we, while we were not a one-to-one -to -one device by the end of last school year, um, Anybody that requested got a device. So that tells me that some families, um, at least half of our families, either had already a device at home that didn't feel they needed to request one from um, the, the school district. So we, we made it work. Uh, the good thing that we were in a good financial position, um, you know, we were, the, the district was not in the red or we didn't have to tap into our line of credit to get some of these immediate resources that we needed in order to move from the classroom now to the home. And so I think that's what we did. We, we kind of just monitored our funding and processed what we could and got reimbursements and kept spending, um, you know, as soon as we were able to, to find the needs of the district. That was Ana Samaniego, the superintendent of the Douglas Unified School District. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all of our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Emma Gibson helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is interim news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.